So a couple of weeks ago, I did an episode about dancing. And if you've heard that episode, you'll know that at the very end, I used a girl to dance with a guy at a Serbian dance festival. And today I am interviewing that girl. Her name is Katie. And I wonder, do you remember that experience, Katie? Of course I do. It was pretty hilarious. (laughs) You had no idea that I was using you in that way. (laughs) This is so true. I was very confused because I know you're gay. And I was like, what is AJ doing? This is so weird. (laughs) Getting discomfortable with sobriety. So the reason that I wanted to interview Katie is not about gay dancing in Serbia. It's about another subject altogether. And today is kind of the perfect day, I think, to interview her about it because it's a milestone in her journey. Do you want to talk about what today is? So today I celebrate 19 years of sobriety. So my sober date is 12-12 of 99. Wow. And so on 12-12 of 99, what was happening for you? Well, it's actually, it's kind of interesting. On 12-10, I had a relapse. I was sober for almost three months and I used mushrooms that night and I was too messed up on 12-11 for that to be my sober date. And 12-12 was the first day I felt totally clean and sober again. And it also happened to be the date I had scheduled to do my fifth step with my sponsor. So now when I think about that date, I remember that I did my fifth step with my sponsor on that day. Why do you think it was that that was the time it really took? Well, it's interesting because my journey, along with a lot of other people's journey, does include relapse. I think What happened when I used on the 10th, it really scared me because I wasn't expecting it. It surprised me. It kind of came out of nowhere. I thought I was on top of my game. I was working the steps with my sponsor. I was going to meetings. And um, then I had a friend who said, would you like to try this drug you've never tried before? It'll be free. And then I thought about it. I said, let me think about it. And I thought about it for six hours and I made the decision all on my own. I did everything wrong that you're not supposed to do that it talks about that we mm-hmm. talk about in the program. I didn't call my sponsor. I didn't pray. I didn't get out of that situation. I didn't leave. I, I just said, let me think about it and made the choice all on my own. Um, so what made that different? I, I think I really, so there's, there's a part of the big book where it talks about cunning, baffling, and powerful is what alcohol is for us. And I'm, you know, I, I call myself an alcoholic, but I'm, I'm a drug addict as well, but I call myself an alcoholic because of the program I chose to get sober in. So I really feel like at that moment, I realized how cunning, baffling and powerful it was. And I also was faced with this dilemma of, do I continue down this road? Because that same friend who was like, Hey, here's these free drugs was said, Hey, I've got more free drugs for you again tonight. Would you like to do that? And then I talked to some sober friends and they said, whoa, you relapsed last night. Sounds like we should go to a meeting tonight. So I was trying to make the decision of which should I do? Should I get high again tonight? Um, Which I knew if I did, I'd be going down that road again and it would be very hard to get sober again. And so that was one option. Or the other would be to go to a meeting with my friends and get help again. 
it was it was a very hard decision. But what actually helped me make that decision was I was dating a guy at the time and I reached out to him and I called him and said, what do you think? What, what should I do? And he said, if those are your two options and you're not sure which one to do, which one to take, then I don't think you're healthy enough to be in a relationship. And he broke up with me. And that was a huge wake up call for me. Mm-hmm. That was exactly what I needed. And I realized how incredibly sick I was uh, in my mindset. And I went to a meeting that night. So you mentioned the big book. I'm not really mm-hmm. familiar with what that is. Is that like the oh, AA yeah, yeah. guidelines? Yeah, that's what it is. It's, so it's the main, it's actually the book is called Alcoholics Anonymous. And we call it the big book. It's the book that the fellowship is named after. So maybe we could go back now and talk about the beginning, not the end. Yes. How did this begin for you? The first drunk I really remember was, it was a pretty out of control night, but but there were a couple times I had gotten a little bit messed up before then, but that night I was so drunk that I had people trying to feed me bread and trying to help me throw up, which I wasn't able to throw up that night. And uh, they were trying to help sober me up. At one point, I remember I couldn't move my body at all. And um, I mean, the weirdest part about all of it is I I look back and I remember thinking it was one of the greatest nights of my life. But any third party would look and say, oh my gosh, that seemed like a terrible night for that girl. She must have had a really bad time. But for me, I don't know why, but it felt like all of a sudden it felt like there was a solution. And then I just wanted to do it as much as I possibly could. It seemed to fill all that was wrong inside me. How old were you? I was, I think I was 14 then. And what was that feeling? It was an escape. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's an escape. I I remember basically my entire life always feeling like very uncomfortable, full of anxiety, also feeling like I didn't fit in ever. I never felt like I fit in. And for the first time in my life, I felt like, so when I was drinking, I either felt like I did fit in or that I didn't care if I fit in or not. And I was Mm -hmm. perfectly happy to not fit in. That's the main thing it did for me. And, you know, I've heard it called liquid courage. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's absolutely what it, what it did for me. It made me feel confident and beautiful and everything. I didn't feel like I already was inside. I mean, everything. It's just like it was like the missing key to life that I felt like everybody else had and I was missing. Just made everything better. And how did it escalate from that night on? Well, from that night on, I wanted to do it as much as possible. And I started doing uh, smoking pot around that same time. And for me, being a high schooler, it's a lot easier in the United States to get your hands on pot than it is alcohol. So that soon became a pretty often part of my week. I I think within, I don't know, maybe within a, a couple of weeks, I was getting higher drunk about two or three times a week. And then within a few months, I was doing it every day either getting high or getting drunk or both. 
how how much alcohol use are we talking about here? So at this point in my life, it didn't take too much to get me drunk. When I first started drinking, it took me about two drinks, two beers to get drunk. Um, by the time I got sober the first time, which was 16, it took about six drinks. Okay. So what was the catalyst for getting sober at 16? Oh, oh man. It's actually a little bit dark. So I was, so at 16, I knew that I loved getting high and drunk so much to the point where I felt like I wanted to do it all the time. And I was dating this guy at the time who was 21, or at least he said he was 21. He was an accountant (laughs) at a nice hotel downtown. So I don't know if he was actually 21 or not, but he took some pictures of me and I let him some nudes and he was planning on prostituting me to hotel guests. This is what he told me. Later, he came up with the idea of doing a porn, and we invited over this girl who was kind of into that kind of thing, and she brought over some crystal meth, and everybody ended up getting so high that we didn't end up shooting a porn that night. And you were into this? You were like a porn or prostitution? (sighs) What I was... Here's what I told him. I said, I will do these things if... And he said, you can live with me. I said, I'll do these things and live with you as long as you can promise me that I can be fucked up 100% of the time. And he was like, yeah, no problem. And so the next morning I woke up and I realized how fucked up it was, like how fucked up that I was willing to go to any lengths to get high Mm -hmm. and to be high all the time. Mm -hmm. So... And I was, I was brought up in a really strict, very strict Christian household. So this was so far from anything I was brought up to do or to be. My parents would be shocked to even hear how far down I ended up going. Mm -hmm. But I went with a friend shortly thereafter. I told her what was going on. She was very concerned about me. She was seeing the same therapist as I was at the time. So she took me to her next therapy appointment and the three of us sat in there and I told the therapist exactly what was going on. Mm -hmm. The therapist then called my parents and said, I think you need to bring Katie in for a drug and alcohol evaluation, which they did. And, uh, the funny thing is at the time, everybody that I told that I was going to get this evaluation, everybody said, lie, you need to lie. You always lie when you get those things, but I'm a terrible liar and I hate to lie. So I was honest with this woman and she gets on the phone and she says, I need to reserve a bed. And I'm, I started laughing. I'm like, what reserve a bed for camp? Where are we going? What's happening? (laughs) And, uh, yeah, no, that, my, she would. She told my dad, who was in the waiting room, you are not to stop. You're not to go anywhere. You need to go directly to this hospital. I've reserved a bed, and she's going to be put in this treatment unit today, right now. And I went straight to treatment. And what was that like at 16? Um, I think it was hard for the people that worked there because I was so resistant. And I... There was a part of me that thought I had a problem, but I wasn't ready to admit that I was an alcoholic and a drug addict. I knew that I loved it more than anybody else. I also knew that alcoholism runs in my family, but I just wasn't 
ready to admit fully to myself at that point that I was an alcoholic. So I made it really hard on them Mm -hmm. and was just very resistant. And then they sent me to outpatient treatment and I was, I did the same thing and I was incredibly resistant and I was that way for about a month. And then they started making us go to AA meetings. And the first time I went into an AA meeting, I remember thinking, everybody here is talking my language. Mm. Uh, When I went to AA for the first time in my life, I felt like I fit in somewhere. Everybody there was talking my language. I could understand everything everybody was saying, and they were being open and vulnerable, and they were sharing about things that I thought had to be secrets that you Mm -hmm. couldn't say out loud. So it was incredibly refreshing for me and also a little bit at the same time scary because I knew that it meant that I was an alcoholic if that felt so right to me to be there. Mm -hmm. But that's how I ended up getting and staying sober for a year and a half at that point in my life. So I stayed sober until I, until a couple months into my freshman year at college. But uh, at that point in my life, I mean, the great thing about being sober in Minnesota, which is where I got sober, at that point in time in the late 90s, there were huge numbers of young people in AA meetings, huge. Mm-hmm. So my home group had about 200 people. About 95% of them were between the ages of 15 and 25. Wow. So not only did I feel like I fit in because of the language everyone was using, but I also felt like I fit in because those were my peers. So what happened when you went to college? I went to college in Florida and I tried to find young people's meetings and I couldn't find any young people's meetings. So I was just going to the regular AA meetings that existed there and Everyone that went to those meetings were much older than me. I remember the closest person to my age was probably around 35 and I'm 18. Mm -hmm. And so there was maybe a handful to one or two 35 year olds and the rest were retirees. Mm -hmm. So elderly people. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I didn't fit in that program. I felt like an outsider. And I also felt like People in the meetings were looking at me like, what's this young girl doing here? I've spilt more beer on my tie than she's ever drank in her life. Mm -hmm. But I know now that that was me judging them. I don't know what they were thinking. I put those, I made up that they were thinking that, Mm -hmm. uh, which I had no right to do. And I had nothing to base it off of. Um, I love that saying, which you've said many times. Can you say it for us? Oh, yeah. What other people think about me is none of my business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's such an important thing to live by. And that would have been a very helpful thing for me to remind myself at that moment. Is that in the big book? No, it's not in the big book, but it is a saying that a lot of people in AA use. Yeah, I think it's so true. So you stopped going to the meetings, I assume? Yeah, so I stopped. I stopped going to the meetings. I did get a sponsor there, but we didn't end up working the steps. So really, I should have known to get a stronger sponsor who would make me work the steps. That would have helped me stay in that program. Uh, better, but yeah, so I, so I stopped going to meetings and I was already hanging out with kids at my college who were normal kids. I mean, they were, 
they were drinking and they were smoking a lot of pot. And um, there were sober dorms in my college, but they weren't for people in recovery. There were sober dorms for, for people who choose not to drink. And I can't relate to being sober because I play sports. I can't relate to being sober because I am part of a religious organization where you shouldn't be doing that. I just don't get why somebody wouldn't be drinking if they could be drinking. Right. So I wanted to hang out with the normal people. And mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I'm kind of a party person personality. I want to be where the parties are and I want to know the fun people and do the fun stuff. So, um, that's what, that's what I was surrounding myself with a lot of people who were getting messed up on a regular basis or to me, what seemed like a regular basis at the time. And at a certain point you just joined in. Yep. So let's see. I had a boyfriend in Minnesota who came to visit me and he, it's safe to say that he's an alcoholic. He told me later he ended up getting sober. He made amends to me. So he is an alcoholic and he was an alcoholic when he came down to visit me and we were, he was drinking a lot. And, um, shortly before he got there, I was stung by a stingray and the doctor on campus gave me some pain pills to deal with the pain. Okay. And, at first I was taking the pain pills normally and I noticed they made me feel like a little bit funny. And then I started snorting the pain pills and then my boyfriend came to visit and he was drinking and I thought I've already been starting some pain pills, might as well drink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's how I started drinking again. But before I started drinking, I did actually, call, I called my parents and I called some very good friends and I called a old, uh, sponsor of mine. And I just wanted, I'm, I'm such a very honest person. I wanted them to know that I had decided to start using again because I didn't want anybody to call me at the time period that was supposed to be my two years and call me and say, Hey, congratulations, two years. That's so great. So I figured I would get ahead of the curve and I would tell everybody I've decided I'm going to use again. And what I told everybody was, I'm not sure if I was a troubled teenager or if I'm really an alcoholic. I feel like I need to figure that out because I got sober so young at 16. Mm -hmm. I really felt like I needed to know 100% for sure I'm an alcoholic or I'm not. So when I, I mean, the funny thing about that is once I started drinking, I knew within two weeks that I was an alcoholic and I thought it would be easy to get sober again because, uh, I just thought, well, if I need to get sober again, I'll go back to AA or, or whatever. It'll be no big deal. I'll be like, oh, I'm an alcoholic. So therefore I'll just handle this problem. But it, after two weeks of drinking and clearly knowing I was an alcoholic, cause I started drink as soon as I started drinking, I was drinking every day. And, um, And the progression of the illness became so clear to me at that point in time, because once I started drinking, my tolerance immediately was already at six drinks, which is where I left off last time. Two years ago, almost. Right. Exactly. Wow. So it was already at six drinks. It wasn't at two where I initially started. It was at six. And then within a month or two, it was like 10, 15, it kept going up. And by the time I quit drinking, which ended up being 11 months after I started drinking again, 
I was drinking about 18 beers a night. Every night. Every night, every single night. Yeah. And sometimes it was, you know, a liter of hard liquor. Uh, One time I remember drinking an entire gallon of peach schnapps. That was a rough night. I woke up throwing up on the wall. It was pretty gross. Everything smelled like peach. Yep. (laughs) I'm trying not to laugh. I'm sorry. (laughs) I couldn't even drink peach snapple for like six years. Oh, really? Yeah. Snapple, not snaps. Snapple. Yeah, I couldn't drink it because it reminded me of that time and it was so gross and I associated the flavor of peach with throw up. So I knew I was an alcoholic and I wasn't really sure what to do about it. I was trying to ignore it most of the time. I'll say at that point in time in my life, I didn't know anybody who drank and partied like I did. So I ended up hanging out with different people, different nights of the week. I kind of was hoping I was pulling the wool over their eyes and hoping that everybody was thinking, oh, maybe she only drinks that hard on Tuesdays. So yeah, so I was hanging out with different people because I didn't want anybody to know that I that I partied that hard every single night. And I guess before I talk about, you know, what really brought it to an end, I want to talk about why it was so clear that I was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So every morning I would wake up and I always remember the way I woke up every morning was... <gasps> gasping for air. So I was startled awake every single time. It was like I was coming to, I wasn't waking up. I was coming to, Wow. and it was very scary for me to wake up because I would always be thinking what happened? How did I get home? Mm. What's the last thing I remembered? Uh, because at this point I was blacking out three to four nights a week. So I would be trying to piece together the night before, and some nights I could piece together a lot of the night or a good amount of the night, and and sometimes I couldn't remember very much at all about the night. So it was always just incredibly terrifying to wake up. And at that point, I would have this set resolve in my mind, I am not going to drink tonight. No matter what happens, I will not drink tonight. And I made a commitment to myself and I would, I would go to my classes or do whatever. And all day long, all I could think about was I'm not going to drink tonight. And that was the obsessive thought that happened to the point to where if I was going to classes, I couldn't hear a single thing that was being taught because all I could hear is I'm not going to drink tonight. So then something would happen around six, seven, eight o'clock at night. It could be as simple as me walking by somebody else's dorm room. They're watching a game and they're drinking some beers. All I needed to know was that somebody else was drinking and I felt like now I need to get alcohol in me as quickly as possible. So then my brain would switch from I'm not going to drink tonight to, oh my God, I have to drink. Where can I get alcohol? I need to get it right now. So just seeing someone drinking was the catalyst. That was it. That, I mean, and it didn't even have to be that. It could just be, I, I don't know. Sometimes I, I didn't even know what it was. It was all of a sudden the the, the mindset would switch. Right. And all of a sudden I felt like I had to drink. And that became my obsessive thought. Did you ever have a night where you succeeded in not drinking? Honestly, feel like once I started drinking, I don't know if I took a single day off. 
in that 11 month period. I, I know there were days off from it in my initial period of drinking, but in that 11 month phase, I can't think of a single night where I didn't actually get drunk. Wow. And the weird thing is when that thought came of, I need to drink, I couldn't even remember that all day long I'd been thinking, I'm not going to drink. It was like that thought was gone. It just vanished. And now all I could think about was getting a drink. So, so this is how my day looked every mm-hmm. morning, waking up, truly terrified, saying, I'm not going to drink, committing to myself, making a promise to myself. I'm not going to drink in every single night, getting drunk and then waking up in the bed again in that same cycle. So, so I knew this, the cycle of alcoholism was in full swing. So I knew I was an alcoholic mm-hmm. at this point. I kept thinking, I'm an alcoholic. Well, that sucks. Why me? Why does it have to be me? I wish it wasn't me. This totally sucks. And that's all I kept thinking about it instead of like, oh, I should get sober. Here's what I should do. I was at that point, I was living in the, this sucks. I don't want to be an alcoholic. So I remember one night I went to a normal college party and I, me and this guy really hit it off and we were talking and I felt like I could talk to him and I opened up to him and I said, I'm an alcoholic. And he was, I remembered him being really sweet and supportive at the time. I don't remember exactly what he said, but he probably said something along the lines of, you should probably do something about that. Mm-hmm. And, um, then that night ended up getting really weird. I ended up going home with that guy and I was in and out of blacking out and we were watching a movie. And then next thing I know, parts of my clothes are not on anymore. And then, and then things are happening and he's doing stuff to me. And I felt like I was in control of my body to the point to where once he started having sex with me, I remember watching the whole thing from the ceiling. So I had a experience where I was completely removed from my body. I don't, and I I had an out of body experience Mm -hmm. and it's the first and only time in my life that I've actually had an out of body experience. And here's this guy who I felt like I could trust. And I told him my most deep and dark, intimate secret. And he ends up raping me. So for me at that point, something broke inside of me. And after that, all I could think is I want to get so drunk that I forget. Mm -hmm. So I actually started drinking purposefully to black out. And that's the first time in my life that I ever was drinking for the blackout. I always wanted to avoid the blackout before, but now I was drinking so that I could black out so that I could forget so that I could not be present. Um, Mm -hmm. So once I started drinking for the blackout, I knew that my disease would only get worse because I knew that now I'm the type of drinker that drinks for the blackout. And once your disease progresses, it never goes back. So I would never be the kind of drinker that would just drink for a fun time again. I'm now the kind of drinker that drinks to blackout. And I also knew on top of that, that from there, it's only going to get worse. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't even think about what would make it worse, but I knew that it could get worse. Like, for example, I guess I wasn't drinking all day yet. Um, That would have been probably the next step that my alcoholism would have taken. But for me, I knew, wow, I'm in this brand new phase. 
that is really scary that I don't really want to be in. So for me, once I realized that, and I did that for maybe a few nights, I knew that the cycle of addiction had to stop somehow. Something had to give. And um, I'm going to be honest, I was pretty... Most of the time I felt very ashamed and very depressed. So this was two weeks into my sophomore year. And I started thinking that I probably wasn't going to live until the end of the semester. I really thought I would do something really dumb while drinking. Like um, our college campus was on the ocean. So I'd probably do something dumb, like go swimming while I was drunk in the middle of the night, which sometimes college students did there. Mm -hmm. But of course that would be incredibly dangerous for somebody who drank to the point that I did. And also very dangerous for somebody who did it in a blackout. Mm -hmm. So I knew I'd do something really dumb, climb a tall building, something, something would happen like that. Or I would just kill myself because I get so tired of it. So I was thinking about my future, thinking I'm not going to live to the end of the semester. Do I want to do something about it? Yes, I do. I want to stop this cycle. I don't want to live to the end of the semester, even going through this cycle anymore. Mm -hmm. I was so incredibly sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was so exhausted by the life I was living. I hated myself. I hated it. I hated everything about my life. So I knew that um, to stop the cycle, the really the only thing I could think about to stop the cycle was either to get sober again, go back to treatment, go back to AA, or to kill myself. And those were the two things that I was really debating. Mm -hmm. And I remember one day I was walking through my college campus and I was trying to figure out which of those two options sounded better to me. And... Up until that point, all I'd really been doing was taking. I was so selfish. I was taking, taking, taking from people all the time. I was using people to get me alcohol, to give me drugs. I was hanging out with not really great people who didn't even go to my school, drug dealers I'd met, and various people like that. Um, so I knew that if I took my life, I would leave this world taking, continuing to take. Um, I knew it would be very upsetting for my parents. And I didn't really think anybody else at that point would be very sad because I didn't have any really close relationships with anyone at that point in time. But I didn't want my last action to be taking. And then I remembered if I get sober, I can help people. I can give back and I can start to give and I can be a more selfless person. And I could use my alcoholism and drug addiction for the benefit of others and for my own benefit. So at that point, when I was walking and I was kind of having these thoughts I felt like I heard a message from my higher power, which is part of being in AA. You have a higher power that helps you, um, helps to change your life for the better mm. uh, that you rely on for changing your life, essentially. Okay. Um, so the message I heard was that I wouldn't have been an alcoholic unless there was a reason for it. And at that moment, I my eyes were open and I realized the reason for me to be an alcoholic was to help others, that that was my ultimate purpose in life. 
So I reached out for help. My dad was visiting me at the time and um, he came, he said he was there for business, but he said later he admitted that he came to check on me because he was very worried about me and about my drinking. Mm-hmm. When we would have dinner or something, he'd say, you know, how are you? Is there anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> anything he would, when he would say those kind of questions to me in my mind, my brain would scream, you're an alcoholic. Tell him you're an alcoholic. You're an alcoholic. But I would push that down mm-hmm. and I would be like, nope, dad, I'm fine. Everything's fine. And um, I ended up calling him one night while he was still there. I called him at his hotel and I said, I, I've been lying to you. I'm an alcoholic. I think I need to go back to treatment. And my dad was so cool about it. The very next day he came over and helped me pack up all of my belongings. And we went to the Dean and we talked about it, got a medical leave of absence. And I went back to Minnesota and was put back in treatment in Minnesota. And was that the time before last? Yes. So after that happened, I was sober for three months and I was working the steps mm-hmm. and everything was going great. And I seemed on top of my game. Then my friend offered me that the drug. And the funny thing is, after I took it, I because ne- I'd never tried mushrooms and I was really actually very excited about it. So I called a girlfriend that I went to high school with who actually happened to be the same girlfriend who took me to that therapy appointment oh, back wow. when I was 16. And I called her and I was like, ah, I just took mushrooms. I'm so excited. And she said, what are you doing? You just gave up your entire life in Florida. You quit going to college so you could get sober again. What are you doing? And that was not what I was expecting to hear from her because I did, during that 11 months, I did a lot of drinking with her, a lot Mm -hmm. of very heavy drinking. Mm -hmm. Honestly thought she'd be like, sweet, yeah, party, that sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I got that response from her, honestly, at first I was pissed Mm -hmm. because it was a (laughs) buzzkill. But uh, later and now I'm incredibly grateful that that was her response. It was what a really supportive, loving friend would do when you have an alcoholic in that situation. That's a good thing to know because I feel like, as some of the listeners may know, I traveled with you for a year on remote year. And there were moments that, and I've talked about this with Katie, where Katie loves to party. She loves to dance. She loves to go out like perhaps more than anyone in the program, but she always does it sober. And that's what is so kind of inspiring and incredible about Katie is that like her, her, energy is sort of endless and her enthusiasm and positivity. And she will go to that all night EDM music festival in Serbia and she will dance all night, but she will be completely sober and everyone else will be drunk or on some kind of pill or something. And so it, it really inspired me to say, you don't need to have a drink. You don't need to do a drug to have a great night. Like look mm-hmm. at Katie. She does it all the time. Mm-hmm. But a couple of times we would see you holding a drink Mm -hmm. like grape juice or something Mm -hmm. and it would look like alcohol Mm -hmm. and I would be panicked like oh no like what what do we do what do we do in this situation would Katie want us to confront her would she want us to say something or not and so it's it's interesting to hear you say that that you would want us to confront you and and you would want us to say Katie like what are you drinking here which Mm -hmm. we sometimes did yeah and you'd be like it's grape juice and we would be like 
I know. It, it was funny because there were a couple times, as you said, where somebody said to me, what is that? Or is that, is that alcohol? <laughs> and I honestly, every time felt like, oh, they love me. See, I'm so happy to hear that because my, <laughs> my gut would tell me, who am I to question you, the mm-hmm. expert on sobriety? You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I assume you'd be insulted. They're like, of course it's not alcohol, AJ. What do you think I am? But so to hear that you're like, oh, that, that your reaction is the complete opposite. Oh, they love yeah. me. Yeah. Is really eye-opening for yeah. me. Yeah. No, that's absolutely how I felt. I felt so loved when people would say that because that's what a, con- that's what a concerned friend would do. Mm-hmm. You know, I do feel like that's the right thing in that, in that moment. And I remember I actually said to people when they said that to me, I'm so glad you asked because if my answer was yes, then you should be highly concerned. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew that I knew based on my experience in college that nobody in my remote year would like to see me drunk because my, my experience in college was I was hanging out with the partiers. They all loved me. They thought I was really cool when I was sober. But as soon as I started drinking, I didn't respect myself and I didn't respect them. And Mm -hmm. I didn't, I basically lost all my friends very quickly. When you were first getting sober, like 19 years ago now, were there still a lot of cravings? Uh, There were some. I remember in the beginning when I would pass those big billboards with alcohol on them, I would get really resentful because I would think that makes it look so beautiful and so lovely. And even in magazines, when I would come, mm-hmm. come across an alcohol ad, it always looks like people are having so much fun, even even on, you know, the television. I mean, mm-hmm. like, just think about all those fun WhatsApp ads that came out. I mean, those kind of things, it makes it look really fun and really joyful. And that mm-hmm. did actually really bother me when I first got sober. It kind of pissed me off. I don't know if it made me want to drink, but there was a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, there were, there've been times since that, that I've thought about it, but literally every time I think about it, I have either laughed it off. Like, Oh, that was a funny thought. Where'd that come from? Mm. Um, or I will be thinking, okay, well, if I want to give up on life truly and totally, then yeah, then I'll pick up. Um, but for me, it hasn't been tempting enough since I got sober last to, to pick up a drink, to actually take the action, obviously. So for you, it's drinking again would be suicide. For Exactly. For me, to drink is to die. So what is the actual process like? Like you've mentioned the steps. Mm-hmm. I don't know what those are. Could mm-hmm. you kind of talk about what the process, you go to AA, what mm-hmm. happens? Mm-hmm. What goes on from there? So when you go to AA, it's suggested that you get a sponsor. And a sponsor is someone who can take you through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or Cocaine Anonymous or Drug Addicts Anonymous. There's many programs where you can get sober in now. Um, And they all suggest the same thing. Get a sponsor, work the steps. And they also say it's for fun and for free. So you don't have to pay to have a sponsor. Uh, The sponsor does it so they can stay sober themselves. So you go to AA, you get a sponsor. Then the the sponsor's job to take you through the 12 steps. 
and they may or may not read the big book with you of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they give you homework that you'll be doing. But the steps, essentially, the first step is admitting that you have a problem, and that's the only step that we can do 100%. So you admit you're powerless over alcohol and that your life's unmanageable. All the rest of the steps are perfect ideals which we strive toward. Okay. So the rest of the steps, actually step two through step 12, are all about building a relationship with your higher power, starting from finding a higher power to believing that a higher power can solve your problems to doing some self-searching in your own life, doing written inventory, then figuring out what your character defects are and, and praying to your higher power to have them removed, making amends to anyone you harmed. And then the last three steps are the maintenance steps, which is continuing to take personal inventory. It's a good idea to do it daily, which I do now. Also, there's a step on uh, meditation, which I do daily as well. And then there's a step about service work and helping others. So, so the last three steps, if you stay in the last three steps, you can really just continue your sobriety through doing those. So they're an ongoing, they're a process, not an actual step that you climb over kind of. Exactly. You never graduate the program. And I have quite a few times started the steps at step one again, and then gone up from there just to redo the steps, just because it's a good idea. I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. working with sponsees of my own. It helps me to be more fresh on everything, going back through the steps myself. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's the steps in a nutshell. And before AA, did you have a higher power? Were you religious? No, not at all. The opposite. The, the entire opposite of that. I was... Um, so around ninth grade, I realized that religion is a very deeply personal decision, and I became very resentful toward my parents for making me go to church. Uh, and I didn't want to do that anymore. And, um, so around maybe like mid ninth grade, they finally eventually stopped letting me go at, at the request of a therapist who requested that they let me stop going. Mm. And from that time, I was very, very resentful about the word God in general. I thought the word God, anytime I heard it, I thought it meant the Christian God and it turned me off entirely. And higher power too, I, you know, I just assumed was the Christian God as well until it was explained to me that AA is a spiritual program. You get to choose your own higher power. It can be whatever you want. Uh, I mean, the kind of the joke is it could be a doorknob if you want it to be. I mean, I don't think anybody's higher power is actually a doorknob, but I've met people in AA whose higher power is, uh, you know, a grandparent who's passed or a um, tree because it's taller than them or just energy because energy's everywhere all the time. So it can be whatever you want it to be. And when I realized that I was able to create my own higher power that works for me. And at first it felt super weird and fake to pray to this thing that I knew I just made up, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then it started feeling more natural and more normal. And, and, um, and now it's like, I don't know what happens when we die. I have no idea, but I know that my life is better here because I believe in something greater than me. And I have a relationship with that something greater than me. 
And that's all that matters. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if something improves somebody's life and doesn't hurt anybody else, isn't it a good thing? So, well, that's yeah. a, such a fascinating question because I am, I, I don't, I don't know that I have a higher power that, mm-hmm. in my life. And I'm the kind of person who wants to achieve everything myself. Mm-hmm. But you, you see a, a higher power referenced in so many religions, of course, but also philosophies and, um, you know, Brene Brown, who, mm-hmm. whose work I love, she also is a big proponent of having a higher power, whatever that is for you. So I'm, you know, I'm imagining from my more analytical side that there really is some kind of psychological utility to believing in a higher power. And, and it's like you're saying, it, it improves your life somehow. And I wonder, I wonder what that is. I wonder why does that help us to overcome something when we believe in a higher power? I think it helps us because there's something greater than us. It's not just us. And I mean, for me, hmm, that's a good question. For me, it really helps. I'm like, so imagine if you don't have a higher power and there's all these steps in the, in the big book and in AA that are um, about praying to your higher power. Well, if there's nothing that you're praying to, you're not just going to be saying those things, you know? And, And so the prayers are usually based around, you know, help me be the person you want me to be today. Essentially, that's what all the most of the prayers are in a nutshell. There's multiple ways of saying Mm -hmm. it and there's multiple other things that go along with it. But it's all about help me be the person I'm supposed to be today. I probably wouldn't even be doing something like affirmations if it wasn't for having a higher power. And even like the meditations I do every morning, I usually listen to, you know, some meditations on YouTube and I, I just know that I wouldn't be doing any spiritual activity unless I had a higher power. And the spiritual activities I do 100% improve my life. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's the act of praying, the act of asking, the it's the intention. intention. My intention is to have a day where I serve others and I don't think about myself all day. So it's like setting that mindset when I wake up. If it wasn't for a higher power, I wouldn't be setting those intentions. I'd just be going about my day and bumbling along and Mm -hmm. and maybe not being the person that I wanted to be. And there's many days where I'm not perfect at being the person I want to be or Mm -hmm. the person that I believe my higher power wants me to be. Many days. But, you know, that's why I do a nightly inventory and I look at what I did and, oh my gosh, I was really selfish when I did that. Or if I notice that I owe somebody an amend, I do it almost right away as soon as it seems to be an appropriate time to do so. I actually did that to you, to you and our other friend, Yoan, very recently Mm -hmm. where I, I was rudely, I rudely interrupted when they were in the middle of a really deep conversation. And, and then I realized, oh my gosh, why did I do that? That, that was totally unnecessary. And I made amends as soon as it seemed like there was a good enough break in their conversation that I could reach out and say that. So that's just, I I just don't think I would be living by those kind of principles if it wasn't having higher power in my life to help for me to kind of be guided. Like that's what I'm sort of trying to do. I'm trying to allow myself to be guided by a presence that is better than me in the sense that it's all love all the time. So is this higher power kind of like an ideal to strive towards? Like I'm wondering Mm -hmm. when you say 
help me be the person you, my higher power, mm-hmm. wants me to be. Mm-hmm. Who is determining what that is? Are, are you saying, I'm creating a higher power that's an ideal of love, and I want that higher power to want me to reflect that ideal? You know, like, yeah. where is that coming from? Where Where is that that kernel of of direction coming from? You or from AA or from just sort of like, you just feel it from this higher power? So... There's some beliefs in AA that maybe things are happening for a reason that we can't yet see. So sometimes something happens and we initially think, oh, that's so terrible. I'm so upset that that happened. I just got fired from this job and it was so important to me. But maybe that's the best thing that could ever happen to you. So for me, believing in my higher power and leaning on my higher power and trusting in my higher power is letting go of what I think the world is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So maybe something that seems shitty is actually amazing. Like my divorce, it felt pretty shitty at first, but it's actually quite amazing. We both live really great lives now because of it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's sort of detaching from things and like so like the thing is where it's like where I'm asking my higher power to help me be the person that my higher power wants me to be is because I know that just because I want something doesn't mean that my life will be any better if I actually get it Mm -hmm. so that's sort of that faith in trust that I don't know everything I don't have all the answers I, th- I mean, I think it's fascinating because it it dovetails so much with the, the things I've been thinking about. And it dovetails with the things that I talked about in the interview with Josh, the flat earther as well. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm trying to figure out, do I need a higher power? You know, that's something that I'm going to have to think about. Would there be utility if I created a higher power like you have? I mean, I love the idea of the intention and the inventory, the inventories that you do each night. I'm like, yeah. that's a great idea. I don't do that. And I could see how I could create a higher power that was sort of like my values, maybe like an idealized form of what I value. Mm -hmm. And I would just strive to to try to get as close to that or, you know, uh, reflect that (laughs) as much as possible. So I don't know, maybe that's an experiment that I'm going to have to do for the future because, but at the same time, I'm very, I've been very, I felt liberated by taking control of my life in a really kind of embracing the subjectivity of the world and saying, you know what, nobody can say if there's objectively uh, truth to God or if there's objectively truth to this certain type of action being good or bad. So it's when I gave myself the power to decide those things, that was really liberating. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, how can I continue to be liberated by my own Mm self-direction, but at the same time, would a higher power add to that or take away from that? And, and I don't know. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, the cool thing about creating your own higher power is you take it with a grain of salt. Like for me, if somebody was to be like, your higher power is not real, I'd be like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it works well enough for me, so I'm going to continue if it right. won't bother you. <laughs> right. So it really is like these, I've been playing with these, yeah. this idea of micro ideologies. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an ideology like loosely held, you recognize that it's kind of an ideology and it sounds that's sort of what your higher power is to you. You're like, this 
this belief helps me, mm-hmm. but I hold it loosely mm-hmm. and, and with an open mind that it may or may not be 100% true. Yeah. And some of it is actually real. Like for me, my higher power started with nature. Nature is much larger than me. Mm-hmm. It encompasses the entire globe. It's incredibly beautiful. And I feel in awe when I'm around it. So for me, that's sort of where I started. This is a real thing that exists. It's a physical thing. Mm-hmm. And then I, from there, I just built on it. And I brought, I'll tell you, there were a lot of things I learned about Native American spirituality when I was in college that I just was like, I like that. We're all connected. Okay, I'm going to take that and I'm going to put that in here. And that's now part of something that I believe. So I can just pick and choose things and, and have it be part of my belief system, mm-hmm. which is a really beautiful thing. So it really is like you have subjectively said, I value this belief yeah. system. I'm taking it. Yes. And then you've used that that by embracing that subjectivity to create something that had a kind of objective power in your mind. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You were also telling me recently that they had done some research into the way that alcohol gets processed in your system when you are an alcoholic. Yes. So I'm not 100% sure if I'm if I'm right on this, but what I've heard or what I remember that I heard is that alcohol turns to acetate in the body. And the alcoholic's reaction to having acetate in the body, which acetate is acetone, which is used as a nail polish remover, mm-hmm. which is a toxic substance. But an alcoholic's physiological response to having acetate in the system is craving. We, that's like kind of the joke is like, I'm allergic to alcohol, I break out in craving, or I break out in handcuffs is another joke. Right. <laughs> But yeah, so our response to having it is to crave more. Then we put more in our body. The craving becomes stronger. So the more drinks we have, we have to continue to drink to satisfy that craving. That's why alcoholics don't stop drinking at five or six. And you say, well, what's wrong with them? Why can't they just put it down? Because everything, every cell in their body is telling them they have to get another drink in their system, Mm -hmm. which is why I used to wake up with a wet bed every single morning, I would go to sleep with a beer in my hand every single night. So I would drink to the point to where my body physically passed out and I fell asleep with alcohol in my hand, like a little, like I was cradling a baby and it would spill. And every morning that's why my bed would be wet. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've heard people say alcoholism is a disease. Do you agree with that? I do a hundred percent. Um, I, I think there, there is a really large movement right now about, um, reducing the stigma. And I'm really glad about that because a lot of people see an alcoholic drinking and they think what's wrong with them. Why can't they control themselves? They're embarrassing themselves and they're embarrassing their friends and their family and their loved ones. Why, why aren't they just taking care of themselves and why are they acting like that? Mm -hmm. Well, why are they? choosing yeah, right unquote, exactly to do so this. so that's what i think about it i think that i actually believe i know that alcoholics don't choose to drink if you've got alcohol in your system and you're an alcoholic it's not a choice to pick up the next drink it is a necessity and it sounds weird to say but it really truly is because everything inside you your brain your cells everything everything is screaming you need more alcohol right now mm-hmm. um and there's no like it's like it's not a choice mm-hmm. it's just 
that's how we are. I don't know if that's how we're born or if something happened later in life to make us that way, but that's how we are. It is just not a choice. Mm-hmm. And that if once you realize it's not a choice, then it doesn't make that person bad. That person's sick. They're not bad. So mm-hmm. I now truly believe I was not a bad person when I was drinking. I was a very, very sick person. And when you can look at someone as a sick person instead of a bad person, you can have a lot more compassion and love toward them. But I do believe that it is a disease and doctors, most doctors do agree that it is a disease. You talked about drinking as drinking to blackout, Mm -hmm. drinking to avoid feeling uncomfortable when you were younger socially. How did you come to terms with living in the moment, being who you are, being comfortable with, with your life, you know, it's such that you didn't need to fill that or distract from that or block that. Well, so I've been told a few things. One, this, and this is something I learned in AA, you build self-esteem by doing esteemable acts. So I did esteemable acts. I did things that would make me feel better about myself, such as, you know, making the bed in the morning, Um, helping others, doing service work, maybe, you know, cleaning up chairs at a meeting, making coffee. Um, So esteemable acts build self-esteem, one. Another thing I learned is that we shouldn't be getting our self-esteem from others, which is how most people do it. Mm -hmm. Most people hear you're beautiful and they think, oh, I'm beautiful because somebody told me I'm beautiful. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not what makes you beautiful. You have to know already inside that you are beautiful to know that, I mean, I I like to hear I'm beautiful when somebody gives me that compliment. It's nice to hear, but in my head, when they say that, I say, I know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean it. Mm-hmm. But that so that's because I get my self-esteem from my higher power. Okay. And I do believe it, It really comes from within, it comes from your higher power, and it does not come from other people. I agree with that completely. I mean, that comes, that's what I learned in my quote-unquote shame breakthrough. I wonder what the shame angle is for you. Do you feel shame when you have to admit to people that you are an alcoholic? Did you feel a lot of shame when you were dealing with alcoholism? I don't feel shame now when I talk about my alcoholism because it's actually something I'm quite proud of. Mm -hmm. I feel like I have a really beautiful full life because I'm sober and I wouldn't be sober unless I was an alcoholic. So it's not shameful for me now, but I will say that when I went to treatment the second time and I came back to AA, I was so full of shame. I just remembered coming in feeling like I was the lowest thing that existed on the planet. Like I just hated myself and felt like I was just intrinsically bad Mm -hmm. as a human being. Mm -hmm. Something was very wrong with me and I was bad and I didn't know if I could be fixed. And how did you gradually get out of that? I think it helped to continually be reminded that alcoholism is a disease Mm -hmm. and that I'm not bad, I'm sick. Mm -hmm. And you can get better if you're sick. Mm -hmm. But can a bad person become good? So, and I just, it was small. It was little baby steps, Mm -hmm. taking Mm -hmm. tiny actions. Um, For me, uh, on top of 
working the steps. It, it took going to a therapist and, um, there, you know, I even took antidepressants earlier on in my sobriety, actually through years of my sobriety, which, which was fine, but Mm -hmm. I did what I needed to do to address the chemical imbalances in my brain, um, as well as seek solution through a higher power and through the beautiful community of Alcoholics Mm -hmm. Anonymous. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just these things. I mean, it was the fellowship. It was being with people. It was making amazing friends and incredibly strong friendships. All of this Mm -hmm. built me up to be the person I am today. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not, I would say that getting sober isn't just about working the steps and working with a sponsor it's, it's about, it's a very social thing as well. Connection. Yeah, absolutely. Community. Yeah. yeah. And we're not doing it alone, doing it with others, knowing that you're not alone. It's huge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Empathy and feeling equal. You're, you, you can't be bad when there's all these other people that are just like you. Mm-hmm. I think that you raise such a, a great point when you talk about the transition from thinking you were bad to realizing that you were sick. And what a powerful change that was psychologically. And that is why when I think about the way we interact with anyone that we disagree with or, or who we think is, who is doing something quote unquote bad, that we have to think about the way we approach them, leaving that, that door open in our, our approach and our language so that they can hear something like, you can get better, you're sick, as opposed to you're bad, you're, you're just, you're canceled, you're, you're done. And I think that that has repercussions for everything, for, for people that we disagree with on moral grounds, for people that we disagree with politically, for people who are, who are, who have broken the law, you know, it was just like, everyone needs to hear that they have the ability to get better. Absolutely. I agree with that. So just as a last sort of punctuation to this. As an experiment, I am going to create a higher power. You've inspired me. I'm going to create a higher power and see what utility it has for me. Look to see if I can find any any negative side, any downside, any way that it's you know impacting my or someone else's well-being. And I'm going to report back. Getting discomfortable with having a higher power. Getting discomfortable with having a higher power. Exactly. Look for that episode coming soon. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it. <laughs>